This morning's sermon text comes from Hebrews 13, verses 14 through 16. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Teach us this morning, Father, what pilgrim worship looks like. Open for us the seamless sacrifice of lips and life that magnify you as our treasure, the light of the city to come. Help me, Father, to be faithful to your word. Open the hearts of the people in this room to receive the truth and to be shaped by it so that their lives reflect your value in this world. So that worship bleeds over into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Forbid that we would be a hypocritical people putting on a nice face on Sunday and copying the world the rest of the week. So come and pierce our hearts. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and revealing the secret things of the heart. Reveal them and change them, Lord, and cleanse us at the root of our being, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I do really want to underline the extraordinary opportunity to hear George Verwer tonight, and it's 6 o'clock, not 5 o'clock, as we advertised earlier. He's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. You get near George Verwer, you get set on fire, or you get consumed one way or the other, sort of like God, <laughs> but he's not God, but he sure is full of him, and so if you don't have anything to do at 6, or even if you do, you will not regret being near God in George Verwer. Visible, corporate, Christ-exalting worship contains the same tension and the same paradox as all of Christian life. There's a tension built in to worship and life. The tension and the paradox come from this fact. Becoming a Christian makes a person both at home and at odds with his culture. No matter what culture, anywhere on planet Earth, becoming a Christian makes a person at home and at odds with his culture. Let me try to illustrate how Christianity does this in every culture where it goes on planet Earth. The tension is rooted in the gospel. 
It's not brought from outside. It's not some extraneous thing. It's rooted in the very center of the gospel. Now, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came into the earth to save sinners. And the way he saves sinners is by living a perfect life, providing a righteousness on our behalf, dying an extraordinarily infinitely valuable death so that we could have all our sins pardoned and we could have a righteousness provided for us that is not ours. So that sins forgiven, righteousness provided, we may go into the presence of God, as the Bible says, justified by faith alone on the ground of Christ alone. Now that gospel reality lands on every culture and takes people as they are. Because justification by faith alone means you don't get saved by fixing your culture first and all of its pieces that cling to you. You are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on the righteousness of Christ alone, and therefore the gospel, as it were, indigenizes itself in a culture first before there's any changes made at all. That's the meaning of the gospel, faith alone. And so it comes and, as it were, can be at home immediately in every culture. It was a scandal. It was an absolute scandal in the early church that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be Christian. Huge controversy. Got to be circumcised? Eat kosher foods? And the answer that the council decided there in Acts 15 and that Paul preached everywhere was no. The gospel lands on Gentile cultures and Jewish cultures and does not strip them of the things that make them distinct. It gets it home before it does anything else. You don't have to become American. You don't have to become Jewish. And you don't have to become Amish in order to be a Christian because justification by faith alone... On the ground of the righteousness of Christ alone means that a person becomes a Christian before any cultural changes happen in his life. So that's what I mean by Christianity makes a person first at home. And then comes a second impulse from the gospel. Let me read it for you from Andrew Walls. Andrew Walls was a former missionary to Sierra Leone and has been until his retirement the professor of missions at the University of Edinburgh. And this is what he wrote, and it was very helpful to me. Not only does God in Christ take people as they are, he takes them in order to transform them into what he wants them to be. Along with the indigenizing principle, which makes his faith a place to feel at home, the Christian inherits the pilgrim principle, which whispers to him that he has no abiding city and warns him that to be faithful to Christ will put him out of step with his society. 
for that society never existed in East or West, ancient or modern times, which could absorb the word of Christ painlessly into its system. It lands on every culture and can be accepted with a sense of at-homeness in Christ before any changes happen. And there never has been a culture, ancient or modern, western or eastern, in which Christ could come painlessly and be absorbed by the system. Never. Rooted in the gospel is a tension and a paradox of at-homeness and being at odds with every culture on the earth. It has an indigenous principle. It has a pilgrim principle. Or to use last week's language, I said, we either have a settler mindset or a sojourner mindset. There is an impulse in the gospel that makes the faith settle down and be at home in a place. And that's good. It ought to be at home in the Fulani. It ought to be at home in Istanbul. It ought to be at home in Minneapolis. It ought to be at home among the Dakota. It ought to be at home among Jewish people. It has an indigenizing, I'm going to be at home here and not strip you of all your cultural distinctives. And it has a pilgrim principle where as soon as it comes, there are aspects of, I'm not at home anymore here. Not at home in this culture, not at home in this city, not at home on this planet anymore. We saw it in the Old Testament, right? There's an impulse of indigenous and settledness and there's the impulse of sojourning and moving and you see it in the architecture. You've got this massive, weighty, immovable temple and you've got this other thing with the drapes and the rods and the boxes. Pack it up, move it through the wilderness called a tabernacle. It's kind of two things to tell us two things about God in the world. God can be at home here. It's his world. And God is not at home here. This world has fallen. We're moving. We have another home. And you see it in the architecture right on through the rest of the world, right? Right through 2,000 years of church history, there's been an impulse. And they're good impulses. There's been an impulse to build a cathedral in every place. The cathedral takes a hundred years to build. And it says something about the stability and the rootedness and the power and the unchangeability of God that owns the world. And then there have always been rented chapels and storefronts and tents and people on the move because the gospel's got to reach the unreached places. And here we don't have any lasting city and we're going home. It's always been both in the church. Look at the instruments here. Look at the instruments. That space up there was built for a pipe organ. Pipe organs are big, massive, expensive, immovable objects. And so are grand pianos. A little more movable. It even has wheels on the legs. But it's not going anywhere fast. And then there are these guitars and drums you can put in the back of a van and hidden, like you said, is an organ there. I was going to say last night it was hidden behind a piece of wood. It's really a 
keyboard and you can fold it up. It's always been that way. There have always been these big, massive, immovable musical statements. And there have been these, let's get on the road with this show. Because there are people out there who need Christ. It's always been that way. Pilgrim principle, indigenizing principle. And what I said last week was, if treasuring Christ together, new bulletin for a new day, three different colors, one for Saturday night, one for downtown, one for north, a little bit of difference, a little bit of sameness on the inside. This, This thing symbolizes something very significant. It's small and cheap which signifies something. And it's got three different colors. You only see one of them. And what it signifies is that there's a vision called treasuring Christ together of not growing by centralization, but growing by mobilization or, um, what's the word? Multiplication, thank you. Multiplication of congregations and campuses and independent churches so that right now there's a North Campus worshiping and they're watching the video of me preaching from last night's sermon, which is why we don't have to worry about the clock here anymore. And next week, you're going to be watching a video of Ken Curry preaching on Saturday night while I'm preaching down at the Minneapolis Auditorium at the Jonathan Edwards Conference, and that's the way the rhythm will go because we're stretching the limits of our tolerance because we feel the force of the pilgrim impulse which frees us to do creative things because we've got to move. We can't just say, well, that would be ideal, wouldn't it, if we just don't live in an ideal world. And there have always been dings on the guitars from carrying them around. And I said that if we're going to do it, if this vision of treasuring Christ together is going to happen, it will require a mindset from settler to sojourner. And now I hope you hear that's not a shift from evil to good. Necessarily. It might be. In other words, it's not evil. To, the indigenizing principle is not an evil principle in the gospel. To be to want to be at home in your culture, not evil. If it becomes enslaving, restricting, if it keeps you from having a pilgrim mindset as well that pushes us out from the comfort zones we live in, then it becomes evil. So I do believe we won't fulfill our mission if we don't have a sojourner mindset. It isn't just missionaries like Dustin and Kelly who should be leaving the comfortable America. It should be all of us risk-taking, comfort-disturbing, semi-nomadic, pilgrim, Which brings us now to verse 14. So if you're looking at the text or you wonder if I'm going to look at the text, let's go there. Verse 14. 
For here we have no lasting city, Hebrews 13, 14. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. That's not a comment about missionaries. That's a comment about Christians. The readers of this book, Hebrews, were starting to drift in the river that is always flowing to destruction. The culture is always flowing to destruction without Christ. We are set to swimming, urgency, moving, vigilance, warfare, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. At the end of his life, I have fought the fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. That's what you got to say at the end. If you drift, you go backward. This church was starting to drift, settle in, start to feel so good to have all of our Christians around and we've got a place to meet now and communion services happen on schedule and we've got lighting and air conditioning and architecture and it just feels so good to be here. And that's why they get this letter, which is summed up in those verses 14 to 16. Here you don't have any lasting city. Watch out, Hebrews. Watch out, Bethlehem. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. And then we saw last week, it yields worship. A kind of pilgrim worship. And so what I want to ask this morning is, what is the pilgrim worship that is yielded and produced by the mindset of verse 14? The pilgrim mindset of verse 14. What does pilgrim worship look like? Now, the first thing is striking by its absence. Clearly, for the writer of this book and for God, style, form, and genre don't even get on the agenda in priority listing. They're not even... There. In fact, if you say, well, this is just three verses, I defy you to find one sentence about form in the New Testament for corporate worship. One. If you go to Ephesians 5.18, sing songs, spiritual songs, hymns, and worship. Spiritual songs, hymns, and psalms. That's as close as you'll get. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And I defy you to tell me what those looked like 2,000 years ago. (laughs) I bet they sounded weird, weird to our ears, to our ears. So it isn't there. The point is this. When it comes to pilgrim worship, moving out among peoples and cultures, the reason it isn't here in the New Testament is so we wouldn't take a specific genre, form, or style to Guinea and try to do it there. It wouldn't work. We are called to do what that conference where Chuck and I were two weeks ago 
on the global consultation on music and missions, and it was a bunch of ethnomusicologists together trying to learn how to take the gospel and root it in the native musics. They even used S on the end of music, musics in every culture on planet Earth. So it isn't here because the New Testament is a missions manual and not a worship manual. But there are four things here that characterize pilgrim worship, at least. Here's number one. I'll tell you what they are, then we'll take them one at a time. Jesus Christ, the mediator of all worship. Number two, praise to God is the continual expression of lips. Number three, practical proofs of that your treasure is in heaven and is worth more than everything here. And four, it pleases God. So let's take those one at a time. Number one, Christ as the mediator of all worship. I get that from the first phrase of verse 15. You with me? Hebrews 13, 15, it says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What does through him mean? Him is Jesus, and through him means several things. One I've already said at the table, he died for us. He rose for us. He became a righteousness for us and a forgiving a ground of atonement for us. And so when we go to a holy God, we will be incinerated, consumed. If we go in our own righteousness, or our own strength, or our own merit, we haven't a chance. Not a chance, literally, of a snowflake in hell. Only it's much hotter. The glory of God is much hotter hotter, and we are much more vulnerable than a snowflake in our sin. And therefore, as we move in the presence of God, we must be clothed in a transparent bubble of alien righteousness wrought for us by Jesus Christ so that as we move into this flame, we can see out through the protective asbestos, invisible righteousness, and enjoy what would have otherwise consumed us. That's what eternity will be like, an ever-increasing enjoyment of the flaming holiness of God with nothing but pleasures getting to us. Chapter 7, verse 25, puts it like this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through him. So we've got to go through Jesus. Now, here's a surprising implication, I think, taken from chapter 2 of going to God through and with Jesus. I had never seen this before some time ago, not long ago, and it was drawn to my attention by a friend who works in missions and worship. Chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to see it with me. This is amazing. The writer says of Jesus Christ, He is not ashamed to call them, that is us Christians, to call them brothers, saying, now here's Christ talking, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now he's talking to his father, talking to God. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the great congregation. I will sing of your praise. Have you ever tried to picture Christ in the midst of this great congregation singing? 
Have you ever tried to picture Christ singing at all? He did sing a hymn with his disciples before they went out to the garden. We know he sang on earth. And now in his resurrected body, I'm sure he could sound like a trumpet that would flatten the universe. So when you picture Jesus Christ singing in our midst of the great congregation, what do you think he would say in his singing? Something like this, maybe. Holy Father, I, with my whole soul and all those that you have given me and for whom I died, praise you, honor you, and glorify your holy name. So, on this first point of Christ as the mediator, think in two ways. Think of Christ as having provided a righteousness for us, and a forgiveness, an atoning sacrifice for us, so that through His righteousness and through His forgiveness, we can enter into the presence of a holy God and not be consumed, and think that as we crawl into Christ by faith and are protected by Him, He's singing with us as we go on our pilgrim way. I love the thought, Jesus, of you joining us in worship. Jesus is worshipped and joins us in worshipping. The Trinity worship each other. They are worthy of being worshipped. Worship is the highest pleasure. Would we deny the Trinity the enjoyment of one another? No, we wouldn't. Point number two in the pilgrim way of worship. Praise to God as the continual expression of our lips. And I think I want to underline continual. Look at verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips. And I thought of at least three senses in which our Lip work of worship in praise is continual. And I'll only mention two. One, it's continual over against occasional, meaning over against Sabbaths, Yom Kippur's, starts tonight at six, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Birthdays, anniversaries, those are the days when we praise. Wrong. Continually over against that, Christians praise every day. We don't say on Sunday, I grew up hearing so often on a Sunday morning, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I just knew that must mean Sunday. It does not mean Sunday. There is nothing in that psalm that says it's Sunday. Every morning Christians get up and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, and out of my mouth will flow the fruit of lips. Praise to my God. That's calling us to continual daily praise, not just Sunday, not just 
Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, etc. And here's the second sense of continually, not just in good times, but in bad times also. There are no praise God moments and criticize God moments. There are no moments that should be divvied up like, this is a praise God moment and this is a fault God moment for the death of Owen. This is a fault God moment for the death of Judy. We don't divide reality that way. Not here we don't. Not in the Bible we don't. Continually. We will praise. I've asked Chuck now for several weeks to learn this song. Blessed be your name so that we could sing it. And I didn't know that it would be sung on the morning when the Lord had given and had taken away. God did that. I just know I love that song. Because it's rooted in Job 121. After he had lost ten children. Lost ten children and all of his goods and his wife was against him and his health was gone. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So then we sing with all our heart. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. My heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. That comes from the gut of my being. I believe that with all my heart. I want my children and my wife at my funeral to say, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When it says continually in verse 15, it means good times, bad times. It'll sound differently. It'll sound differently. The tears will be streaming down our faces. We'll be hugging one another differently. But out of our mouth is going to come. Blessed be your name. Your ways are inscrutable. Your paths are beyond finding out. I don't understand and have all the questions answered. One thing I know, God is sovereign and God is good. So blessed be your name. When the way is paved with suffering. Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. That's a great song. Because it's just Bible. It's just Bible. Third, pilgrim worship is marked by practical proofs that your treasure is in heaven and that it's worth more than everything on the earth. Pilgrim worship is marked with practical proofs that your treasure is in heaven and it's worth more than family or health or life. Verse 16 is where I get this. Do not neglect. Now, this is all flowing from verse 14. Here we have no lasting city. 
Therefore, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices. And that's a link back with verse 15, sacrifices of worship. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The reason worship um, is worship when it consists of doing good and sharing what you have is because when you let things go, God blesses you and he will bless you. If you're an honest person, a believing and trusting person, have some modest mental ability and apply yourself in this commercial culture of ours, you're going to make some money. What are you going to do with it? How will you make Jesus look really precious and valuable instead of making your house and your car and your vacations and your toys look like your treasure? That's the challenge of being a Christian on the pilgrim way. How to make God look like your treasure by the way you handle your possessions and your money. And the answer is, we're going to be lean, wartime footing, and we're going to not coat the pipe with gold. We're going to say to one another, Thank you, copper will do. And as the money comes in, it's going to go out. And the copper car we drive and the house we live in and the toys and computers that we have will simply say it's all about giving. Does your life say it's all about giving? It's all about reaching the unreached. It's all about the poor and bringing them up a little bit. It's all about the people who are dying of AIDS or dying of malaria or dying of Nile disease. Because this little fly lays a worm and it crawls through their eyes, tens and hundreds of thousands of them, which if they just had the help they need, might have eyes. We just think and think and think of the fact that this world is not our home. We're going to heaven where we'll have spectacular palaces to live in forever. We don't need them here. And therefore, we will live to make Jesus look really good. That's what worship is. We're a rich church. That building is about to be finished in the next 10 days. Debt free. And that's a great answer to prayer. Many people have dug deeply. And we were praying this morning at 7.30. Oh God, may what happens in that palatial American building compared to the world be a mindset not to say, this is cool, this is great, but rather hear these little children, these teenagers, these adults say, out from here I will go and lay down my life in the cities and lay down my life among unreached peoples. This is functional to that end. And that's what verse 15 is trying to say. No, 16 is trying to say. So pilgrim worship is marked by practical proofs that your treasure is in heaven. Finally, pilgrim worship pleases God. And you see that at the end of verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. 
Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Why? There's an answer given in verse 6 of chapter 11, if you want to look at it. What pleases God? Verse 6 of chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, that's what we're doing in worship here in verse 16, 15. Whoever would draw near to God must believe. Now that's the link with faith. Faith, what kind of faith, what kind of belief, what do you have to believe to please God? One, that he exists. And here's the amazing one. That he rewards those who seek him. You want to please God? Come empty for reward. And that's not Cadillacs. That's Christ in his fullness to be enjoyed. He who has God and nothing is the wealthiest person. Far wealthier than he who has everything and not God. The reward here is God. The city is the city of God where he is the sun and the moon. So what is it that pleases God in worship? I really do believe this should mark us deeply. We worship Saturday night with Ken Bohr at the piano. We worship downtown with Chuck Stedham and his unique personality and his form developing here. We worship at the North Campus with Dan Holst and his unique personality and his form developing there. And over time, these are going to look very different. And that's okay. But I pray that when any of you goes to any of those three worship locuses, corporate worship locuses, what you will taste is here are bankrupt people coming for riches. Here are empty people coming for fullness. Here are hungry people coming for the food, which is Christ. Here are thirsty people coming for the fountain of life. That'll mark pilgrim worship. Because what pleases God is when we come to him for reward, which is him. And if we have it all already, if our hearts are so stuffed full of the white bread of the world, we won't have any appetite at the banquet table of heaven. We need to be broken. We need to be gutted. We need to be stripped. We need to be emptied. We need to be bankrupt. And so I just pray that I have a flavor about our worship. These are broken people, hungry people, thirsty people, needy people, bankrupt people who are coming because they know where their satisfaction can be found. God gets great glory from that kind of worship. Today, today, October 5, is the 300th birthday of Jonathan Edwards. And I resolved that I would not make a big deal out of it, for God's sake. But I will make a big deal out of it next weekend, downtown. But I'm going to close by reading a paragraph from Jonathan Edwards, who I owe under God more than anybody knows. And it captures what worship should be. The redeemed 
have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament, their diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem, and he is the river of the water of life that runs, and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints, and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy angels, and they will enjoy one another, but... That which they shall enjoy in the angels, or each other, or in anything else whatsoever, that will yield them delight and happiness, will be what will be seen of God in them. And he has written many such things. Is it any wonder that under the preaching of this man, by grace, a great awakening of enthralled God-centeredness happened in New England and throughout the colonies in 1734 and 1745. Let's pray. Lord, let it happen here, I pray. Let it happen in America and Europe post-Christian, seemingly too far gone, selling their birthright for a bowl of poisonous pottage. Let it happen at Bethlehem and every church that names the name of Christ. Let us be united at Bethlehem in this kind of pilgrim worship. It's not about form. It's not about style. It's not about genre. It's about pleasing you and displaying with our lips and our life that you are our treasure. And so I pray that we will give you all our worship as we close.